0: So, Mike, how are things going at Center for Security Policy? Okay, they're, they're
1: going pretty well. Are We've they? got a great Homeland Security project underway. Oh, good. Kyle has put together. I think you've met Kyle. I did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing Frank's radio show um, every Monday morning, and I'm doing you know multinational finance and China and all that. It's great fun.
1: Oh, good. <laughs> good. Yeah. The, the, he's. Always bringing in some great guests on the show. I, I'm never, I seldom listen to it because I've got so much going on, and then I forget. Well, mine can't is, catch up.
0: Mine is particularly worthwhile. Well, that's the problem. Is you know, we're all we're all doing all this outgoing stuff, and we're never paying attention to what anybody else is doing, and we should. Yeah, we really should. We should. Okay, Kenny, we ready? All right, Bill Walton Show, April fourteen. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing.
1: Interesting people, interesting things.
0: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, with events moving so rapidly with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I wanted to call an audible on this show to bring in somebody who is really an expert not only in the geopolitics of it and the geomilitary aspect of it, but also the psychological aspect of it. Uh, Mike Waller, returning guest, J. Michael Waller, Ph.D., he's with the Center for Security Policy, and his doctoral dissertation uh, was called Secret Empire." the KGB in Russia today, and in that, and this was uh, 40 years ago, he predicted the rise of Vladimir Putin and has been a real student of Vladimir Putin um, really ever since. And Mike Now is also, uh, he was a Annenberg professor at the International Communications at Institute of World Politics and instructor, instructor in psyops Operation at the Kennedy uh, Special Warfare Center School at, at Fort Bragg. So... Mike, thrilled you're here. Nice to be back. Although the circumstances are always sort of dire when we get together. Uh, Bring us, you know, it's now uh, April, mid-April 2022. Where do you think we are with Russia's incursion into the Ukraine? And are they winning, losing, stalemate? What's your assessment of what's happening?
1: I don't think anybody can honestly say where we are. It depends on the day. <clears throat> it depends on a whole lot of factors when it depends on personalities and not groups of people where it's more predictable. You know. How's the president of the United States today? How coherent is he? How coherent is his chain of command? Uh, where have our NATO allies flip-flopped most recently, for better or for worse? Uh, what's Vladimir Putin's mindset? How is he communicating with his general staff? These are all unknowns every single day, so we can't. Nobody can say how things are going right now.
0: Well, I had we, I, Peter Pry you you on. You and I were on together with Peter Pry, and we gamed out something. We, first, we talked about the possibility of this provoking a World War III, um, which is still on the table and still a possibility. But we there's a there's a theory that, that Putin really would like a long war here it's really grinding the West down. If you look at what's happening with the sanctions imposed on Russia, at first it clobbered the ruble. Now the ruble's climbed back up to where it was and Russia's still getting lots of revenue from natural gas and oil sales. Uh, And of course, they've been hurt. I mean, their economy is going to be down 10, 15 percent this year. But it seems like they're thinking that may be a manageable uh, outcome if Putin can keep NATO and all these other countries engaged in Ukraine, Europe is getting clobbered economically the same way the United States is. And the head of the uh, uh, biggest uh, uh, chemical operation in the world based in uh, Germany, I think it's BASF, said that if they ended up not getting uh, Russian gas, the German economy would basically shut down.
1: Right. Right. So Germany has created this dependency, which we've been warning about for years. Since 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 the Reagan time,
0: well, Angela Merkel in particular was anyway
1: continued. Well, yeah, but even Reagan saw this when the uh, Trans Siberian pipeline was being built in the eighties. Yeah, that would that made Europe dependent on Russian gas, and he had a covert operation that Norm Bailey had a role in, which was to uh, the the Germans wanted this pipeline in there, and they needed I think General Electric turbines, and so. The, the Reagan's National Security Council staff and Bill Casey at the CIA ran an operation to grudgingly allow GE, I think it was, to sell this technology to, for the pipeline. But it contained a uh, piece of software or a small piece of hardware like a chip that would ultimately malfunction. And it finally did, and it blew up the pipeline. So our early warning satellites looked at, saw it as a possible nuclear missile launch had we not known what we were... What was going to happen there, and that set back the Soviet program for years. So what we're seeing now, under the past twenty odd years with Putin and and with Angela Merkel and her socialist predecessors, bringing on this new set of pipelines, is really an extension of that old one from the eighties. So where does that leave us now? I mean, what is that leaves our main uh, Central European NATO ally completely dependent on putin's good graces in order for its economy to continue ouch
0: not a good place to be
1: no and it's a weak ally and it's a double dealing ally even on a good day
0: what's your assessment of the new uh, new head of germany he gave a very strong stirring speech a week after all this happened and
1: yeah he did but it's easy to give speeches but he's still uh, slow walking everything in terms of making good on whatever commitments he's making. He either makes the commitments and sticks with them or, you know, don't make a fancy speech. So he's made great speeches, but I don't see where he's really put, um, uh, you know, real policy or energy behind making those things happen.
0: So do you think we have a str- I mean, we talked about this. You, you mentioned at the outset, we've got a leadership team here in the United States, starting with, uh, Joe ghost gun Biden, uh, which was a pathetic thing to watch in the, in the Rose Garden. Uh, and then we've got the, uh, our, our Secretary of Defense and our head of the Joint Chief of Staffs who agree that uh, uh, white rage and, and, uh, and, and climate change are the biggest issues we face. And oh, by the way, now they've got to deal with this thing in, in, in the Ukraine. I mean, do we have a leadership team that we think can, can, uh, can, can act assertively in this case?
1: No. That was a pretty leading question. I (laughs) Well, really, when you think of it, though... No, I think they're going to be great. Sorry. (laughs) Look, if you want to wreck the military and if you want to turn it into a politicized, you know, social revolutionary operation, then we have a great leadership team. Yeah. None better. But that's not what our military is for. And so if you're Vladimir Putin or you're Xi Jinping in China and you have your own ambitions... And what's holding you back is wondering how the United States might respond. And you see Joe Biden, and then you see Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi, and then the Defense Secretary Austin, and all the worse than politically correct, but just woke and and crazy social engineering policies for the military, where they would rather force our war fighters out of the military than stop their transgender plan. That's the strategy. So you're you're Vladimir Putin and you're thinking, this is the time for me to strike at Ukraine. I've been talking about this for years. The world has ignored me on it. This is time for me to move. And now we find ourselves in the situation that we're in. And
0: do you think Putin expected to take this long to to work his way through ukraine was this was this a surprise i've heard that he hasn't brought in his best tanks he hasn't brought in he hasn't used cyber warfare very extensively and there are a lot of tools that he in in his arsenal that he has not used i mean is this what's what's going on here
1: part of it i think is we have conditioned ourselves to think the russians are 10 feet tall still even with the Soviet collapse and everything we saw behind that. So having been in Moscow during the Soviet collapse, it was shocking to see just how decrepit and backward so much, really everything. You were there in 91? 91, 92, 93, up through 94. What were you doing there? I was helping, I was working with the the opposition to have Russia secede from the USSR, doing political (laughs) training with them, working with Ukrainians and Balts and others to take down the Soviet Union from within, give it a push. Because George Bush was trying to save the Soviet Union. Uh, but we were working since the Reagan times to help undermine them and it had this crazy were, were idea. Were you with one see. of the agencies? No, always civilian. No, the agency didn't do this stuff. No, okay. No. This was. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. If you don't want to succeed, then you collaborate with the CIA. If you want to really succeed, you do it privately.
0: So you were there then and you saw this and you saw. So we think you don't think we've overestimated the strength of their their military conventional military
1: capability yeah oh but even even the uh, nuclear uh, i became friends with uh, president yeltsin's national security advisor general alexander Lebed, and Lebed was a was a pretty hard-nosed general but he really wanted to change the country and really wanted uh, to end any hostility with the united states and he came and he said i've been trying to raise this with the american government but I can't get any answers, but I've been doing an inventory of our tactical nuclear warheads, and we're missing about 110 of them. Do you know anybody who can help us find them? (laughs) So we had that kind of window of opportunity at the time, where if you were just just straight with these guys and and could speak like normal people to each other and, and not have the sense of pretentiousness or talk down to them, they come to you for this kind of help and then you realize what well, they can't even keep track of their nuclear warheads what kind of system do they have and then we had another we had a russian bomber pilot general Jokar dudayev who actually hated the russians he was an ethnic chechen but he was based in estonia then soviet occupied estonia and took the trouble to learn the estonian language and then he went back to become head of chechnya and then he came and said hey i've got a i can fly you a bomber with nuclear weapons on it, if you can provide safe passage to the bomber, you guys can have it if you just help us out and be, help us become independent from Russia. I mean, we would have access to all that technology and everything else. I went to the Clinton National Security Council on this, and they said, we're, we're not going to touch that. He would have flown the bomber to Italy or, or any other place and landed it if he could land it at a NATO airbase.
0: Did you find the 110 nukes?
1: I don't know. I handed it off to a Clinton NSC staffer who then had a movie made about it with, uh, with uh, Nicole Kidman and, and George Clooney. And that's all I ever heard of.
0: So we've got uh, to call Nicole and George to find out what happened yeah, yeah. to the nukes. I'm,
1: I'm sure they'll know.
0: Uh, so, but we had a whole State Department that didn't really want to see the Soviet
1: Union dissolve. They were scared. And not just the State Department, but the, the CIA said it could never collapse condoleezza rice at the white house then bush's uh, bush 41 uh she was the soviet affairs person she was deathly afraid of having the soviet union collapse she was she wrote the chicken kiev speech for pre- that president bush gave to convince ukraine not to try to become independent and we're over there trying to work to help the ukrainians now, <laughs> secede
0: I, I wouldn't i was I was off doing private equity back in those days. What was the chicken Kiev speech? I've always heard the term, but what, what did he say?
1: He said, he went to Kiev and he said, we've got to stop this, to temper this sense of nationalism that will become destabilizing. And basically in his gentle way saying, don't even think of seceding from the Soviet Union because it's just not going to work. So you have the American Republican leadership trying to save the Soviet Communist Party and save the USSR, very fearful of it, and the whole political and diplomatic establishment behind it. And then Bill Clinton went on to to continue that and make the problem even worse.
0: Has there been a jump shift in our national security establishment since then, or is it just a continuation of that mindset up up to today?
1: It's pretty, it's, it's like a club. Okay. So you're either welcome in the club or you're not welcome in the and club. And what are
0: your credentials if you're in the club?
1: if you if you've gone to the right schools or hang out with those who've gone to the right schools if you have gone along with certain policies and not been disruptive if your ideas are within a conventional acceptable range and they're not too innovative you can be part of the club and if you're ready to compromise your principles you're certainly welcome to be part of the club that's kind of a mandatory price of admission
0: And you're not being cynical, you're just being factual.
1: It's just personal experience.
0: Okay, you've been there. Well, uh, this is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Mike Waller, and we're talking about, uh, we're beginning to start talking about our national security establishment and uh, what it takes to join that club. So we're coming up to today, and we're in this mode where all the headlines are about Ukraine. uh, And... How much is it in our national interest to be to care about what happens to Ukraine? I mean, I know we, 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 wanted, we don't like humanitarian crises. We, we, wanted, we want to, quote, do something, but uh, do we really have a, a, a role there?
1: That itself is a big debate. I mean, what, what role should we have? Should we about have because we've got all. a lot
0: of conservative friends yeah. that say, you know, look, we've got to get tough, we've got to defend Ukraine, we've got we to shut down Russia... And then we've got, a, I guess I'm in the dove camp where there are people that say, look, there's really not a whole lot we can really accomplish there. If we wanted to bring in all of our conventional forces, that could be a catastrophe leads directly to nuclear war with Russia. Why would we want to do that? Seems to me like we ought to be getting on the phone. Although I don't, as we've talked about, I'm not sure whether Joe uh, Ghostgun Biden is the right guy to get on the phone with, uh, with Putin but we ought to be communicated with him when trying to shut this thing down. So that's my two-camp world of where where people were thinking. What do you think?
1: It's that and it's a bit more. Putin has his own doctrine. He really wants to rebuild Russia's greatness the way he sees it. He's a nationalist. He doesn't want to restore the Soviet Union, but he does want to restore the old Soviet Empire, Mm -hmm. which was actually bigger than the Soviet Union. And to do that, he has to do, he has to deny the existence of certain nationalities, meaning not just sovereign countries, but certain ethnicities and nationalities. And the main one is Ukraine. So Ukraine is actually the heart of the Russian existence, because the Rus' nation, where we get the name Russia, was founded by the Vikings in Kiev. Mm-hmm. So that's where Russia comes from, Kiev, but So he's sort of in this Ukrainian denial phase where this ethnicity must be wiped out. So You can't reason with a guy like that. You, you can't moderate someone like that. But you can influence his behavior. The point is, to what extent is it in our own national interest as a country beyond being a, a do-gooder military power that just you know, does good things but actually ends up making things a lot worse sometimes mm-hmm. so is it in our vital national interest and then to what level so yeah as a humanitarian issue sure as an issue to support our allies yes as an issue to safeguard our own interests probably not
0: was it a blunder to try to force uh, ukraine into nato it seemed to me like that was one of the tipping points for putin
1: he likes to say that. I don't really agree that that was a tipping point because it, his own ideology was that, that Ukraine must be destroyed
0: So th- th- that preceded any moves on NATO. So this was just in the DNA.
1: Yeah, because that's that's a years-old process that people sort of had accepted that likelihood, and the Russians didn't really try too hard to prevent that from happening.
0: Well, you know Putin. You've spent... Forty years thinking about Vladimir Putin,
1: or at least if not well, a little over twenty-five. Over
0: yeah. twenty-five, yeah. but you, but you, you predicted that the KGB was going to end up running Russia. Yes, and they did. Yes, and they do. Yes, and obviously Putin, straight out of the KGB. What, 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 what can you tell us about him as a man?
1: Well, first, the, the the whole policy when you had the Soviet Union breaking apart, they didn't have laws; they only had power, and that power was either guns and informants and agents, and cash. So then you had the, the development of a gangster state. And this, so, so this is what I predicted in, in my 1994 dissertation. This is in the
0: dissertation. 90s, after the dissolution, and not, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I finished it in 93, but this was that Russia is going to become a gangster state, uh, an alliance between organized criminal cartels and oligarchs and the old KGB, and the Russian state will be in control, will, will be controlled by these elements. Largely because of U.S. policy. So part of the do-gooder policy we had then, where it was certainly in our interest to shape the Soviet, the post-Soviet space during and after the collapse, but when you shape it so that you leave these elements in charge and you look the other way while it's happening and you denounce and marginalize both Russians and Westerners who are warning about this, then you're creating, you're creating the problem that we have today. So that was all foreseeable we had really good opportunities to get it right. And this is not speaking in hindsight, but it was from the foresight at the time. And it was the conventional wisdom where you had the, uh, the Bush types feared upsetting the status quo and they were comfortable with the communist status quo and maintaining that communist status quo even in a post-communist situation. Where the Clinton people looked at it as more of a business opportunity, make a lot of cash very quickly with very little accountability rather than looking at what's really in our strategic interests. So there was never an attempt by the US to leverage our massive aid to Russia, to stabilize its economy, uh, to, to help it rebuild, never to leverage any of that on ripping out the roots of the old KGV, decommunizing in the way we had denazification in Germany, which was extremely successful, and making sure that the old Soviet traditions were uprooted and exposed and discredited forever. So none of those were ever on the table for, in terms of U.S. policy. So the Bush people opposed it. The McCain Republicans opposed it. The, uh, nearly all the Democrats opposed it. Some of them were, were very wise about approaching it. Senator Bill Bradley then of New Jersey was one of them. But the grand old sage on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Joe Biden, opposed all of these measures.
0: Say, Senator Joe Biden... The, yes. The grand old sage.
1: That, well, that, yes, that's why Obama picked him as his running mate, was because Obama had no foreign policy and national security experience, and Joe Biden was considered the wise man of the Senate on all of these things.
0: Well, what, didn't somebody really <laughs> smart, was it Sam Nunn, said that Joe Biden's been wrong on every, every foreign, uh, foreign relations decision in the last 50 years?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A lot of his <laughs> colleagues have said similar things.
0: But my, my obsession recently has been China and everything that's happened. We All the American companies went into China. And at the time, it was, we were going to go in, do business with China, they'll get them richer, they'll become more democratic, they'll be just like us, and we're all going to live happily ever after. That didn't happen there. But there was also a gold rush of American companies into into Russia. What what happened with that? I mean, did it, you said there were people going in to make money. I mean, how much of that tilted uh, russia in the direction it is going now
1: well it it didn't it didn't work the same way as it did in china I and mean, i think it works badly for us in china given the situation that we have now but I at agree. least you had companies going in and dealing with a system that had a system had its own rules had its own cronyism had its own way to make you rich and co-opt you and 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 then make you act as a chinese agent in in the u.s And we had all these you's from from the the big engineering and aerospace companies to hardware and software companies to manufacturers and everything else, and they would all end up acting as agents of influence for the Chinese regime. In Russia, it was a lot different, where the, the businesses were subsidized often by the American taxpayer, either directly in terms of contracts or other guarantees, or indirectly by international monetary fund loans and World Bank projects, a few of which were very successful. What we did see succeed in that was the the IMF money, which was literally put on pallets on 747s to fly from New York to Moscow to be delivered to the Russian central bank in you know freshly wrapped Federal Reserve packages of cash.
0: Did we use that, the same pallets that we used to send cash to, to Iran?
1: <laughs> the recyclable yeah. pallets. the same idea. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Same idea. And and so they're, they're all shrink-wrapped on these pallets and sent to <laughs> Russia. Now you had the shipyard workers at Severodvinsk going on strike. They're laying the keel of this next generation strategic ballistic missile submarine called the Bore class submarine. They're going on strike because they're not getting paid. This is a Soviet project that was set up to, to be a superior design to our uh, Ohio class submarines that fire the strategic ballistic missiles. And uh, so the, the work on this submarine would shut down. And then the money would come through with the IMF. And one of the first things visible that would happen was the strike would stop at the submarine shipyard. And this happened two or three times to the point where the Russian finance minister, Boris Fyodorov, warned us. And he told me, but he also warned the public. He said, this IMF money is not enough to do us any good, but it's plenty to make really bad things happen. So that submarine, the Yuri Dolgoruky is the name of the sub, is the first of several of these Bore class ballistic missile subs that now have an arrays of nuclear weapons aimed at us, which is what gives Putin his power. If he didn't have modern nukes, he would have nothing.
0: Well, he certainly has modern nukes.
1: Yeah, and we paid for them.
0: What about their first strike doctrine?
1: They uh, revived it and they formalized it, meaning first strike meaning that they would use first use of nuclear weapons mm-hmm. in a conflict. And not necessarily strategic nuclear weapons aimed at us, but tactical weapons or what would be called battlefield nuclear weapons. They would, they, Gorbachev had renounced first use of nuclear weapons. Putin revived first use of nuclear weapons. Now, whether, whether or not you could believe Gorbachev at the time, I think he did have that in his doctrine whether or not that was happened, we don't know. But the fact that Putin took the trouble to come out and say it, and that the Russian military has been drilling on this, you know that they're serious.
0: Is, uh, is Putin in an underground bunker now?
1: We've heard various reports. There, there have been drills to uh, move the whole Russian elite to yamantau mountain in the urals and to novosibirsk in siberia there have been actual air drills, drills or actual movements actual drills uh, with the aircraft and everything meaning okay. it's been live drills now whether they move the people we don't know but there have been a lot of reports that putin is in a bunker either outside moscow or out in the ural mountains whether he goes back and forth we don't know
0: well, I mean, I'm I'm still sort of probing. I want to learn more about Vladimir Putin. You've you've been following this guy. Was what is he? Some people say he was a stable guy, chess player. We could you know we could predict him. And then the last you two years something's changed, and he's now become unstable and unpredictable, and he's cut off from the rest of his uh, leadership. I probably made that too much of a of a dichotomy. But where where do you think he is now? Is he is he off and Just in isolation and doing this on his own? Or does he have the full support of the Soviet uh, military apparatus?
1: Well, First, we don't know. We don't know precisely. The fact that right now as we're talking, he's sacked a large number of generals. He's had arrested over 150 of his own senior secret police people. There's a report that his defense minister has suffered yet another severe heart attack during the sacking of these 20 top generals. So he certainly doesn't have the support, or at least uh, he doesn't have the confidence in his military and intelligence leadership. Nor should he, really, when, when he, he really thought he could take Ukraine in several days. He only gave his troops, you know, his forces only had three days' worth of food, insufficient fuel, and there was an idea that they would take Kiev as a symbolic or as a real actual strategic victory very early on. So they completely underestimated uh, their own capabilities, or they overestimated their own capabilities. They underestimated Ukraine's capabilities. I think they thought President Zelensky was just a buffoon being a comedian, and he would flee. And this is where you had, I think, a similar understanding between the Biden team and Putin that Zelensky would flee and then there would be a parallel government or a puppet government set up and then and Russia would just be able to rule Ukraine and then it would be basically over so the fact that he was not well informed on any of these things and it seems to be a case of people being afraid to tell him the truth mm. this was visible right in the right at the initial invasion time when he he dressed down and humiliated his foreign intelligence chief in front of everybody and the, you had this the head of the russian spy Agency is stammering and stuttering and, and visibly afraid, standing forty feet away from Putin, just visibly afraid of telling him a real answer. That's not a good sign of confidence. Yeah, no,
0: it's not a good sign. Uh, so you've done all, a lot of work on our national national intelligence uh, agencies, and I mean, you're saying you say to me, "Well, we just don't know this. We just don't know that." We, I mean, does does our side really? Are we doing spycraft in any useful way to know how to predict what they're doing and, and be effective?
1: We only know what's public. And so we like to think, well, really, there's such great stuff. It's just so classified that we'll never find out. And, and that might be the case. Let's say part of it is the case. Yeah. But there is so much leaking going on. Some of it's strategically done with a purpose that does make sense to shape a narrative or to try to deter, deter Russia or whatever else. But you also have leaking going on for self-promotion of people with inside the CIA and the, and the political system in the executive branch. And that's really, really dangerous. But none of the leaks have shown that we have any sense of strategy or that we really know what Putin's mindset is.
0: What about Mark Milley talking to the Chinese and providing inside uh, intelligence to them?
1: Yeah, well, first, it's, it's normal for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or for some other very senior four-star right. to talk to their counterparts in China or Russia or elsewhere, because often when a political figure makes a statement that is against what, what the general understanding is, mm-hmm. it's necessary from a professional military level to call the counterpart and say, hey, uh, everything's fine on this side. We're, there, there are no changes in our policy. Yeah, we don't, you, know, you don't need to get paranoid for what we're doing. And it's, it's, a, it's been productive in the past, especially with the Soviets in the past. So it's avoided some nuclear accidents.
0: So what about the fact that I've heard that we're, we're trying to reach out to the Russian military leadership and they're not responding, they're not returning our calls? Is that true?
1: That appears to be true. Every source that's mentioned this type of communication has said that the Russian uh, Putin did not respond to Biden's calls. And the Russian general staff, which is their equivalent of our joint chiefs of staff. So we're talking about not just one general, but several who we would traditionally correspond with at a peer level. We're not responding to our calls. And this is really dangerous.
0: And if you're right about Putin's whip hand or or reign of terror with his military leaders, then anybody that steps out of line to do that is is putting their life in in jeopardy.
1: Yeah, because Putin has shown he he will kill people. Poison. It, poison is his favorite yeah. weapon. If you look, there are some great uh, collections of images of foreign leaders who won't shake hands with him, and in one place there was a a chef who. Putin extended his hand to shake hands with him. And who wouldn't want to shake hands with the president of Russia, like him or not, in a social event? Um, he, the chef wouldn't even shake hands with him. Kim Jong-un wouldn't shake hands with him. So, so people are afraid that he's going to poison them with something on his hand.
0: So this is not concern about COVID. This is uh, something more lethal.
1: <laughs> You're right, yeah, because some people say, well, Putin's not meeting with people up close because he's afraid of COVID and he's a germophobe or whatever. But no, his picture's... Uh, where he was sitting 40 feet away from his own defense minister, who suffered those two surprise heart attacks during the military purge. Forty feet away at the same table. You know, Putin's afraid of his own people. We, we call it the von Stauffenberg seating arrangement. like the
0: but Von Stauffenberg is who?
1: He was the German officer who... Had, Place the bomb oh, at the conference table Hitler. with Hitler. Yeah. So we call it, and, and if you look at that long table where Putin sat, it's, it's a good, it's like the size of a shipping container. At, at Putin's side of it, there's a blast barrier on the floor right below, right below the surface of the table. Like if somebody plants a bomb, they're not going to get him. So he's really, really paranoid. But it's not a germ thing because where he met with certain local power brokers within Russia who had no, no power in Moscow, he met with them up close. Closer than you and I are here at the table, so he, it's not like he was afraid of COVID or anything. <laughs> this is a very bizarre world.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I just, I, I, I'm laughing, but it just, I'm really worried that we're, with all this instability in Putin's camp, and with the instability in our own camp, we're going to blunder way into, into you know, Putin. If he is that isolated, that he might say, well, look, let's use a tactical nuke. And then somebody, you know, one of the children in our defense establishment or State Department is going to say, "Well, you know, we got to nuke them back." I mean, do you, do you see any probability or possibility there?
1: Yeah, anything's possible. And this, okay. the, see, this is the danger where predictability can be good in military rivalries when the stakes are as high as they are—nuclear mm-hmm. stakes. Yeah. And this is what gets back to Ukraine. Personally, you know, I'm not as dovish as you are on Ukraine. I believe in a in a strongly in a people's right to self-defense. And having been involved with resistance movements in the past, um, that are awful, messy, tragic affairs, it's still people's right to defend against an invader or against a, a communist regime. And so I really support the Ukrainians there up to a point, meaning I think we have a moral obligation as a people to, to help other countries in this way, but not when it places our own country in danger. And this is what Team Biden is pushing us into, is, is pressing that danger point. You know, there's been surrogate <laughs> warfare between the U.S. and Moscow for you know, since World War II, and we haven't fought each other about it. There's been an understanding that there's a range of operations where it's not considered a direct attack but when we keep pushing well, with our daughter and leadership... Yeah, it seems
0: to me like we're getting really close to a proxy war. When we send them, what have we got? three trillion or three billion how much money have we sent to them, 800...
1: Billion? It's hard to say what they announce versus what they say and do but a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, if, uh, and then to, to, to be blabbing publicly about what we're doing is, is extremely dangerous. There, there's something called deniability. And it's not necessarily that we'll fool the Russians, we might here and there, but you don't just go around crowing about what you're doing because it's, it's showing your hand.
0: Well, Mike, what, uh, I want to shift gears a bit. You've also got a point of view. I guess a lot of people are leaving our national security establishment. People are not, people. the talent that we need is leaving the agencies.
1: Yeah, and this has been going on for a while. You had in the CIA, you had a lot of really good operations people checking out at age 50 or after they put in their 20 years of service. Mm-hmm. Some of them went back to become contractors so they could double dip, but some just said, you know what, I want nothing to do with this anymore. They've been leaving the FBI. I mean, the good ones have been leaving the FBI, not, not the bad ones. Mm-hmm. And they've been leaving the, the military, and, uh, and the military's been leaving them. So One of my colleagues is a Marine reservist. He was just pushed out because of uh, his, he was refusing to order his men to take the jab for COVID. So he was pushed out of the service, and that was to be his whole life's vocation.
0: Okay, I want to end with a note of optimism. Help me out.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, we've been through through a lot of this before, and we've had darker times than we have before, and somehow we muddle our way through.
0: I'll take that. That's <laughs> as good as
1: we get. That's about it.
0: <laughs> we're demand inquiring minds want to know. Everybody everybody in this room. Come on, Mike. <laughs> okay, well, if we're counting on that goodness <laughs> That's gracious. As basic uh, as it gets. Anyway, this has been the Bill Walton show with uh, with Mike Waller and as always we're trying to dig into what's true and what's right and what's next. And uh, I don't think we got that far in this show, but we're getting—we're—we're going to make progress anyway. Mike Waller, J. Michael Waller, Ph.D. Thanks for joining, and uh, we'll be back soon. And uh, hope you enjoyed this, and uh, we'll keep you apprised of, uh, of, of as we learn things about uh, what's going to happen next. So thanks.
1: That was fun. So you provoke—you provoke <laughs> Not often that I actually. I'm
0: have glad much, you an did that. Yeah. So Mike, how much can't you say because you know so much?
1: I'll say pretty much whatever, unless, okay. unless, you know, it's a.
0: How worried are you about Mark Milley? Very. Amplify.
1: Well, it's not just his, his foolishness about, about white rage and, and pushing transgenderism and all this other weird stuff on our military. It's much more than that because of the way military promotions work. So the people rising to the top are Milleyites. Your, your, your three stars are going to recommend the two stars who should get promoted. And the two stars are going to recommend the brigadiers who should be promoted and so on and so forth. And so the military, it's really a, a brown-nosing force now where I used to not trust anybody with a... Well, first, I used to trust anybody with stars on his shoulder. Then I learned, no, don't trust them with stars on their shoulders. And now I'm like, I don't think I trust colonels now either mm-hmm. just because you see how people are being attritted out. And so if somebody makes it to lieutenant colonel, Uh, The best guys, unless they're real uh, in the special ops community, probably aren't going to make it even to full colonel now.
0: seems like every really interesting foreign policy, national security analyst that you see on TV, they're all lieutenant colonels. And they they got retired before they got to be colonels. So the kind of people that seem to be trenchant and understand our interest and what to do about it, they seem to be getting drummed out. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to TheBillWaltonshow.com to choose from over a hundred episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.